Okay, good morning and welcome everyone to our study of Galatians. Now, last week we did all of the preliminary and preparatory work for getting the context as much as we can have it and with the state-of-the-art scholarship that's available to us. And today we're going to be diving into the text itself and going as slow or as quickly as you would like. But before we begin with chapter 1, verse 1, let's begin with an invocation of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> oh, thank you. And there's light. I thought my eyes were getting worse, or I was getting sleepy or something. All right, so without further ado, let's simply jump into the text and see where it takes us. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Let's pause there at the end of verse 2. So already we have Paul stating his credentials. Why do you think that may be the case? Right. So, Paul has gone through to the churches of Galatia, and he has proclaimed to them the gospel as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul's going to recount his own history, his own conversion, and what brought him up to this point momentarily. But he came through as an apostle as he moved along to continue to preach the gospel to the nations, Behind him came in other apostles, so-called apostles, who were modifying his gospel in ways that we'll see in this first chapter. He is establishing his apostolic authority, and he's doing so particularly on this basis, that he is an apostle of the first order. We can see that in the New Testament documents, the language of apostle, okay, apostello, to send forth, has a wide sense in the scriptures and a narrow sense in the scriptures, in the same way that the word disciple, a mathete in Greek, has a wide sense and a narrow sense. So, on the one hand, with disciples, there are 12. And after the betrayal, there are 11. That's the narrow sense of the word disciple. But then Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So there's a wide sense of disciple. The same thing happens with those that are carrying forth the gospel. There's a wide sense in which they're called apostles, ones sent by Christ, sent by the church into the world. And there's a narrow sense. In which, So the narrow sense of the apostles would be the 11. Um, obviously, uh, Matthias is added in Acts. 
St. Paul is called directly by Jesus as one who is sent as an apostle to the Gentiles, but those are the apostles proper, then we can see the language of apostles, of sent ones, almost used the way we would use the language of evangelists or something like this. The idea being that anyone can be an apostle, more broadly speaking, even women. I I think you have, for example, uh, Junia, which is almost certainly a female name, uh, being called an apostle in this wider sense, one out proclaiming the gospel, um, not in a pastoral office sort of way, but just in an evangelistic sort of way. But here Paul is saying that he is an apostle of the first order of the highest order. His apostleship doesn't derive with man, nor was it given him through man. So the, or, the origination of this apostleship is not with man, nor does it even come from God to another man to him. That's what is behind this language of not from men. That is, it doesn't originate with man, nor through man. It doesn't originate with God, but he receives the call immediately through man but rather directly through Jesus Christ and God the Father. He's saying, I'm an apostle directly through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So that establishes his authority over and against those who have come before. And yet again, in our Monday night men's study of 1 John, we see the same thing take place, that the very beginning of that epistle, like the very beginning of this epistle, is this is my authority. Very important foundational piece. And then from that is extended the argument. All right, before, we, uh, before I go any further, I just wanted to zoom in on verse 1 and the apostleship. Any questions particular to that or particular to verse 1? We'll get to verse 2 then here in a minute. Everybody's okay? goes back to what you said earlier. God, God chooses whom he wants. Yes, right. So in this case, we obviously, and as chapter 1 progresses, we're going to see this in spades, that in choosing St. Paul immediately to be his apostle and revealing himself to St. Paul, he is choosing probably the least likely candidate that one would ever guess God would choose for an apostle. Because St. Paul, as we're going to see, is taking the lead in persecuting the church. This is, this is if you're a Star Wars fan, this is something like Darth Vader's out there trying to crush the Rebel Alliance, and God converts Darth Vader to work for the Rebel Alliance. Sorry if that's a little nerdy for you, but my family, we just watched the Kenobi finale last night, so this is all in my mind. All right, we have a hand in the back there. Uh, But we do know from the book of Acts that the apostles cast Lot to pick the 12th apostle. Mm -hmm. How much before that, before Paul's conversion, was that? And what kind of happened to him? Did he just uh, realize that a mistake was made? Yeah. Yeah, okay. that's, that's frequently the question. I don't think that to be the case. There, there is a little bit of an open question here. Some people hold that 
that the disciples were in fact in error in casting lots and putting Matthias in, who God really wanted was Paul, and thus you've got 12. I don't, I don't think that that's right, but I'm not going to condemn anyone for holding that opinion. I think that they were right, that the Holy Spirit did choose Matthias as the 12. And the 12 are important, particularly when you think of the gospel going forth to the people of God, to the Jewish people. You've got 12 tribes, you've got 12 apostles, 12 sent to the 12 tribes of Israel. Then you have one specifically chosen, uh, Paul, as apostle to the Gentiles. That's not that neat and tidy because obviously Paul does some work with the Jews and gets frustrated with them and then goes on. It's not like he's out there going, okay, well, I think you're Jewish, so I'm not going to talk to you about the gospel. It's not like that. But the 12 really have their seat from which they're evangelizing in Jerusalem up until the point where Jerusalem is under attack and the temple is destroyed. So... That, of course, takes place. The temple's destroyed in 70. Jerusalem is under attack somewhere around 66. So you're thinking roughly 33 to 36 years. Their hub, the, the hub of the 12, is in Jerusalem reaching out to God's people. Meanwhile, Paul and others who are converted along the way, um, Barnabas, Titus, Timothy, Tychicus, and uh, Luke, and others... Um, are going out into the Gentile world and spreading the gospel. Does that make sense? Does that kind of answer the question? So I don't see it as a mistake. I just see it as this is a different way that God's he's just looking at it differently than we are. So Matthias was pretty active. Yeah, we just don't know. I, um, the assumption is yes. We don't know much about, um, I think off the top of my head, a majority of the original 12. We hear of some of them doing some things, but the rest is just assumed that they're part and parcel of the evangelism of the Jewish people. I, I like how he puts this, raised from the dead. Yes, so interesting in terms of Christology, although not really what Paul's after, nonetheless illustrative of a way that we can conceive of this. So if you remember by way of contrast in the Gospel of John, says... No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up. There, Jesus and John recording it is putting the power of the resurrection in the person of the Son. Here, Paul's putting the power of the resurrection in the person of the Father. Through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him, that is, raised Christ from the dead. I believe elsewhere, though I I don't think I could quote it off the top of my head, that the Spirit is also implicated in the resurrection of Jesus. So the answer here is all of the above. The entire Trinity is involved in the resurrection of Jesus. And it's okay to have kind of a particular or nuanced take, either Jesus raising himself, a la John, or Jesus being raised by the Father, a la Galatians. All right, so he has received his apostleship, not from men nor through man, but through 
Jesus Christ. Of course, we see that language, Jesus Christ. This is in and of itself a confession. That is, Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, is the Messiah of whom the Old Testament scriptures speak. So simply to say Jesus Christ, that it is a confession. It is, in effect, the shortest creed. And God the Father who raised him from the dead. So this is where he gets his apostleship from. You see the nice little dash, which is to say that in English it just appears to be a run-on sentence, which Paul is famous for. So, verse 2, And all the brothers who are with me. So Paul is not writing in isolation. He's also drawing to their mind the fact that there are other what we would call clergy, but I don't think the laity are excluded here in the least. I am, we are writing to you plural. This is more than just me personally, which may well have been one of the attacks of the opponents who came behind St. Paul with this other gospel. They may have said, that's just Paul. That's just Paul. He's on his own. All of us, and as some theories go, all of us who are coming from Jerusalem we are representative of a plurality in the majority of the church. So Paul calling these things out right off the bat, I'm apostle of the first order, and by the way, it's not just me speaking, it's all of the brothers with me, to the churches in Galatia. So far, so good. What does he say? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why can he bring this grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Because he is the one sent by them. So sometimes when people describe the apostleship in the formal sense, the language that's used, brought in, is from the Hebrew shaliach. Have you heard this term? In English, it would be something more like power of attorney. So, in the ancient world, a wealthy person would authorize his messenger to go conduct business on his behalf. The word for that was a shaliach. You can think of the Old Testament where, um, I forget the specifics, but a servant is sent out to procure a wife. So, there's the full authority of the master is within the sent one, the servant. And this is what's behind Paul's apostleship. So the grace and peace are not his own personal well wishes, nor are they those of the church, but rather specifically from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, they send through me grace and peace to you. Luther likes to take this in different ways, but grace he likes to see as the vertical relationship, and as already this is being established as the foundation of Paul's case that God views us graciously, that is not on account of our works, which would be meritoriously, but he views us graciously. And then the peace being expressed here is a peace that flows from God to the community, that is to the church, so that there would be unity and peace on the basis of this doctrine, on the basis of this grace of God. All right, well, irrespective of that, we have God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself... For our sins, that's the huper word in Greek, so the way it sounds in English is pretty darn accurate, that he gives himself for our sins 
to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever unto the ages of ages more literally amen all right what's going on here we have an explicit statement from the apostle that it is Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that is to say to take away our sins and here's the interesting purpose of that not here so much that we would have forgiveness although that's certainly true and not denied but here the explicit purpose is that he would deliver us from this present evil age now this is the most key interpretive point that we've run across up to this point in the epistle. If we understand this as he's going to deliver us from this present evil age, that is to say when we die we'll be in heaven, or when Jesus returns this world will be consumed in fire and a new age will be begun. This is pr- these are probably the most common ways we think about this, and that's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying that because Christ Jesus has come and has put away our sins, he has already removed us from this present evil age. This would be quite apropos of of our Lord's words that you are in the world but not of the world. You are in this age but not of this age. The old age has been put away for you in Christ Jesus. Now this is going to be very important in terms of his argument because later on he's going to argue that Obedience to the ceremonial law was part of the old age. In fact, that's really going to be his linchpin argument, is that since Christ has come, a new creation has begun. The old law, the old circumcision, the old liturgical calendar, the old dietary laws, all of these things that were mandated and omitting them was sinful, This is all part of the old age. Now that Christ has come, the new age has come, and that, if we're going to call that the law, the law has been put away. So I simply point that out. It doesn't have to be obvious to you now. You don't have to take my word for for it now, but it will bear itself out as we march through the epistle how key and important the understanding of this clause is and why it finds itself right up front, even in Paul's greeting. If you look down at your study Bible, your Lutheran study Bible, on verse 4, the footnote, you will see present evil age, and then here's the explanation. Evil powers in this world rule in opposition to God, but Jesus' atoning death has delivered Christians away from the evil one, with reference to Colossians 1.13. Because believers already participate in the age to come, we're going to see this in chapter 2 of Galatians, they are in the world but not of it. They are not conformed to it. Okay, so you can see there that this isn't the personal opinion of Rhodey, 
This is also held by the editors of the Lutheran Study Bible, that this deliverance from the present evil age happens through the death of Christ by which he makes atonement for our sins. And of course, if you want to put a finer point on it for the individual, it's when you believe in this, that you're brought, when you're baptized, you're brought outside of this present evil age. Please. So when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not in, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We should be thinking from this evil age, consistent with this verse. I, it's certainly true. Yeah, I just I don't know that Jesus is going to put that fine of a point on it. Uh, in the Greek, it is deliver us from evil, apotuponeiru. Um, really would read more literally, deliver us from the evil one. Now, that's true in a present tense sort of way. The catechism picks up on both the present and future aspects of this. And we're praying, deliver us from the evil one. We're praying that God would keep us in faith, in Christ Jesus, that we not apostatize or fall away. That would be the present tense, deliver us from the evil one. And the future tense would look toward death or the parousia, the second coming of Christ, that that would be the future sense in which he delivers us from evil. And this is the great comfort of a parent that loses a child, is you can give thanks and praise to God that that petition for your child has been fulfilled. They have been taken away from the evil one, delivered from the evil one forever. They're in heaven with the Lord Jesus, with angels, archangels, and the whole company of heaven. They are safe from him forever, you see. So those would be the two aspects of that, uh, that petition. Yeah. Thank you for that. Everybody else okay? All right. So of course, Paul kind of engaged in a lengthier sentence here, but to deliver us, that is, Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, often Paul will give a kind of thanksgiving paragraph here, but he doesn't. As far as introductions go or prefaces go, this one is short to the point. There's not, there, there is kind of a doxology, but not the fullness. There is no real thanksgiving proper. These are usually key elements in Paul's epistle writing. So what does that say that Paul is agitated and ready to get down to business? And indeed, that's exactly how it starts. No sooner has he said forever and ever unto the ages of ages, amen. And he says, thou matzo, which doesn't quite come across in in English, although the English isn't bad, but it's just, I marvel, I can't believe it, I'm astounded. Um, this thunderous roar from, you know, these glorious, heavenly, Christocentric kinds of uh, things he's said so far, and then just, boom! Thaumatso, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting. Now, the verbal form there, are deserting, is present indicative. You are in the very process. This is ongoing desertion. Um, switching teams. 
like the Star Wars analogy, Darth Vader switching teams, or like the star quarterback of your team suddenly switching teams at halftime and playing for the other team. This is what's behind the la- like deserting here is betrayal. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting from betraying him who called you in the grace of Christ. Now, it is possible to understand this him who called you in the grace of Christ to be Paul, but I don't think that's the case. That would really sort of fall flat. The him who called you in the grace of Christ is the Father. So this same Father who has raised Jesus, the same Father who has willed that Jesus would come and rescue you from this present evil age, this same Father, you are deserting and betraying him, and I am astonished by it. That you are so quickly deserting him, the Father who called you in the grace of Christ. Now, don't skip over that, because if ever there was a place where this isn't just fluffy language. This is meaningful language. It's here in Galatians. The grace of Christ. They are, they are deserting the Father, but not in the abstract, but in the concrete who called you in the grace of Christ. That is, they have rebelled against his calling in the grace of Christ. And we know that that's true because they've departed from salvation by grace alone, and they've succumb to this false teaching of it is, yeah, salvation is by Christ alone, but it's also necessary that you be circumcised and follow the ceremonial laws of the Jews. It is necessary that you believe in Jesus Christ and live as a Jew. And that is a falling away from grace. That's a deserting and rebelling against grace. Do you see that right off the bat? So, again, grace here in this epistle, if ever it's used in a fluffy way, I don't know that it is. It certainly isn't being used that way here. This is in a technical sense. This is is a fundamental aspect of, of the argument he's going to make against this false theology they've bought into. So it is the Father who called you in the grace of Christ And you are deserting or rebelling against him and against this grace and turning to a different gospel. A heteron gospel. You can hear if you have kind of the ears for it. A heterodox, heteros, other. Heterodox is other glory. A hetero gospel, another gospel, a gospel which is no gospel. It's just the perverted gospel. And so he's clear enough. It's not like he's correcting himself in seven. He's just explaining exactly what he's just stated. So there's no misunderstanding whatsoever. So you are turning, and now notice how the present indicative continues, this idea of this present tense. He's not saying they have fully deserted, that they have fully turned. He's appealing to them in this optimism that they are in the process of doing this and he's calling them out of that. So you are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you. Uh, For this reason, we can call the You know, I I think I spoke last week how it's kind of out of fashion to call them legalists or Judaizers. I still sometimes call them Judaizers. Big big deal. Um, But here you you could say that they are troublers. 
because they are those who trouble, or the opponents of Paul, because obviously they are in opposition to what he's taught. So there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And that's, a, that's an important thing, because they're not just coming out and saying, hey, Paul said salvation is by grace, we think salvation is by works. They're not coming out and saying that. They're saying everything Paul said is right. He just left out the fact about you living like a Jew, which is also necessary. And this is, in fact, Paul's not going to stomach that. He's not going to take that because you've added something in addition to grace, in addition to faith, that is necessary for salvation. It's necessary for being a Christian. So Paul's not going to have any of that. So they are, though, distorting the gospel of Christ. And that's important to see. I mean, I think we see this, like, this is the, the Lutheran problem with Roman Catholic doctrine is yet to one way, shape, or form, the gospel is there. It's just that they've added to the gospel. They're distorting the gospel. It's not that they're preaching that salvation is by some completely other entity and some completely other God. They're saying that salvation um, that comes from the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ is a matter of grace but that and faith but that faith has to work itself out in love and so you're you're saved by faith by grace but also by that working in you and thus by your works also so we would use this exact same language even though they're not going to be identical we would use this exact same language that they are distorting the gospel of Christ does that make sense All right, so there's a great deal of subtlety involved here in the first century. There's subtlety involved in the 16th century with the Lutheran Reformation, and there continues to be that subtlety today. Verse 8, as if the language could not get stronger, it does. Paul writes, but even if we, now notice the plural, it's not I, it's we, myself and the other brothers, whom he mentions in the second verse, even if we or an angel from heaven, I mean, think about this, even if one of God's godly angels, even if Michael or Gabriel or some other holy angel comes from heaven saying, this just in, God has in fact modified this, Paul says, you don't listen. You don't listen to an angel from heaven. You don't listen to me. You don't listen to any other pastor or any other Christian who's going to tell you different. If I lose my mind, if I apostatize, you don't listen to me. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we, plural, which again he's saying, look, the gospel you originally heard from us wasn't my idiosyncratic gospel. There was a we who preached this gospel to you. So just as the opponents boast that they are many and I'm one, that's a lie. I am with many also and we preach this original gospel to you. What gospel? The grace of Christ. And now they've come and perverted and distorted the pure grace of Christ. So if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema, which means accursed. So falling under the curse and judgment of God. Now Paul doubles down on this. That's how 
It is really impossible to overstate the intensity. I mean, Paul's an intense guy anyway, particularly in his writings. But this is like Paul at his most intense, superlative intensity. Because he doubles down in verse 9. As we, now just continue to note the plurality here because he's not standing on his own. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be anathema, accursed, under the curse and judgment of God. Verse 10 always strikes our ears as odd, and the reason for that most likely is because he's answering an accusation that the opponents have made against him. What would, how does that accusation go? It goes like this. Paul didn't want to tell you about the circumcision part, because are you looking forward to that? No. He was trying to appeal to you to please you, to get you to commit to the first step. He was serving you. He was serving people in doing this. Maybe at its most crassest, Paul is a people pleaser. That's why he didn't have the heart to tell you you've got to get a certain painful part of your body excised. So take a look at 10. You'll see right off the bat a kind of rhetorical question. For am I now seeking the approval of man? I actually like the way I think it's the New King James renders this. It's clear to me. For am I now seeking uh, to please man? Or am I seeking to please God? Am I seeking, so in the ESV, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? The rhetorical answer is obviously, I am seeking to serve God, to please God. To, I, I could care less about what you think on the basis of what? The fact that I've just anathematized you, me, any other apostle, angels from heaven. I don't care what you think. I'm not here to please you. I'm not here to please man. I'm here to please God. Okay, That's the first answer. And it seems to be an answer against this a, a charge that's been made against him by his opponents. Next question also sounds confusing to us, but it's really not. Or am I trying to please man? I think the, like, the way I would put this in modern English is, or do you think I am a people pleaser? Self-evidently, by what I've just written to you, I'm not. And I'm confirming to you that, in fact, that is not at all the, like, why I've kept circumcision from you, you know, which would be the charge. So it, this all becomes clearer if we look at the latter part of verse 10. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, this still trying to please man is, in fact, I, this is kind of an ingenious piece of rhetoric, though I easily lost, no doubt. It's subtle. But what he's saying is, effectively, when I was a Jew, I was trying to please man. We're going to see that played out in the latter half of chapter 1, where he talks about his role in Judaism and how he was trying to please his elders and his countrymen and indeed outdo them in terms, I mean, such was his zeal for 
Judaism. So he looks at this, I, I mean, this is, I think, a subtle insult that he is saying, hey, it's these other guys who are pleasing man, not me, namely the men who still follow the old age, the old law. So to clean it up, am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Clearly God. You think I'm a people pleaser? I assure you I am not. If I was a people pleaser, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. If I were a people pleaser, I'd still be in Judaism. Maybe if I were a people pleaser, I'd I'd be doing exactly what the opponents are doing. For I would have you know, brothers, and again, look at, for as harsh and as tense as, as it is, there are still indications that Paul still loves these people, sees them as Christians, and wants their best. Again, you're in the process of deserting him. You haven't deserted him. Um, You're in the process of turning to a different gospel. You haven't. And here he refers to them as brothers, which is a term of Christian endearment. He sees them as fellow Christians under one God and Father. So I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me, now this is the gospel that he brought to them at first, that if you preach anything different than that original gospel, it's anathema. So this gospel that was preached by, by me, that is to say to you right off the bat, is not man's gospel. Look at the parallel here in verses 11 and 12 to the parallel in verse 1, where in verse 1 he says, look, I'm an apostle not from men nor through man. Here he's going to say that the gospel I have was not preached by, or the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. It's not according to man. It doesn't have its origin in man. For, verse 12, I did not receive it from any man. Nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's yet another place where, you know, it's the editors of the Bible who put in for our convenience, and to some extent it's helpful, and I see why they do it. But this subheading, Paul called by God, can actually distort or cause a little bit of loss of clarity, as opposed to it just not being there. Because if it wasn't there, look at how verse 10, 11, and 12 actually fit together. Okay, so we're going to go to the last part of verse 10. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Thus, I'm not trying to please man. How can I? The gospel I preach isn't man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man. And this is true. Acts 9 bears this out, that Paul wasn't converted by some man preaching the gospel to him. So, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, Paul himself is not only directly converted by Jesus Christ, but the content of the gospel was given to him directly by Jesus Christ. All right, so I received it through revelation. The language there is the apocalypsis, the unveiling that Jesus Christ himself did to me. I was converted by Jesus Christ. The gospel that I preach was given to me directly by Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't recorded for us line by line, word by word in Acts or anywhere else in the scriptures. Paul is just simply asserting this is what happened. 
So we take him at face value and we can't go look up like, well, exactly when did that happen and exactly what was the content. We're not given that information in the scriptures. Paul is simply here telling us that it did in fact happen in just that way. Let, yes, let's pause there. That's a, that's a nice break. If it were me, that's where I would put the break because now he's going to go into his former life in Judaism. Yes, please. This stirs a lot of my Americanism right now. Mm. Think of what's going on. The, the Supreme Court of New York this morning said, yes, we are holding on to the Second Amendment. Mm. And uh, just, I just find our time very unsettling. Yeah. Think of think of the contrary, and I'm going to say to uh, make the comment that I learned in this room, which I referenced some weeks ago, the law of non-contradiction. Mm, yes. I learned in this room for the first time. I'm going. How in the world have I never heard that before? And think of what we have going on: the abortion um, argument, plus the taking of. Um, people's guns to protect themselves and their family. Mm. To me, that those are two contrary things. And I don't know if I'm making any sense at all, but it just, uh, I, don't, I love the strength that St. Paul gives us. Yeah, absolutely. So it comes directly, I mean, the beauty of this is that this is our stability in a world that's gone topsy-turvy with evil. And as we even look at the, as we look at Satan and his leadership over the fallen world, we say, we can say with St. Paul that this is the present evil age and we ourselves have already been snatched out of it and we're working against it. So we can take comfort that this, that this reality has been created directly by the Father, the Son, through his apostle, and even as we're reading his words, to us. So this let's, will be stabilized by God's word, right? I just love it. Yep. Thank you for presenting Galatians to me. I think My pleasure. I approached yeah. it years ago. It was just a whimsical thing. Oh, it's a St. Paul writing. And yeah, yeah, of course. It's just... Uh, it's so it's common for powerful. all of us. Yeah, and, yeah. And the book, Wild, um, just... Oh, yeah. I'm so enjoying our study. Thank you. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, God's Word is living and active, and so it hits us in different ways at different times. All right, was there another question or comment, or are we okay to go on a little further? Okay, so, yeah, again, here is where I would put the break between 12 and 13, because now Paul is going to recount um, where he has come from and how it, it is that he has come to understand the gospel directly. Verse 13, For you have heard of my uh, former life, and the Greek is clear, like my former manner of life, my mode or way of life, in Judaism. Now, important to actually pause and like consider what Judaism is, because it's going to factor into his argument. If you look at the study note on verse 13, okay, Paul will tell his story as evidence for his point, namely that, uh, that it's Christ who revealed the gospel, no one else then either from Paul himself or from reports being circulated about him, they had heard of his former life. 
Okay. That, I mean, what does that say? You have heard about my former life in Judaism. I mean, Paul was an absolute rock star in Judaism. Like, his reputation went far and wide. When I use the analogy of, of, uh, of Darth Vader, it's kind of like that. Word had spread that there was this Jew of Jews leading the charge against this heretical sect who followed Jesus of Nazareth, and he was the celebrity face and uh, general leading this movement. Okay, so continuing on just in that study note, the key point I want to get to is where you'll see Judaism off on the right-hand column of the study note. This is the religion of the Judeans. This designates the Jewish faith and way of life that distinguished Jews from Gentiles, including especially circumcision, dietary laws, Sabbath observance. That is, it has to be on Saturday and you have to rest and you can't do any of these other things um, that constitute work as well as the system of feasts and sacrifices. So when we hear this language of, you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, it's going to be Paul's zeal for things like circumcision, dietary laws, Sabbath observance, feasts and sacrifices, many of which we're going to see recur later in the epistle as things that the opponents of Paul have come in and tried to put in place. Now to be clear from our vantage point, Paul is really only talking about this, what we would call the ceremonial law at this point. And that's true enough. That's all that he's talking about at this point. So, you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted. So, this is repeated and continuous action grammatically in the original language. The church of God. And here the English does not do justice, I don't think. Um, how I persecuted the church of God. Violently, The language there is the word from which we get hyperbole. So, with extreme prejudice, <laughs> I tried to persecute, and that's what governs. I tried to persecute the church and destroy it. In fact, the language of destroy is annihilate. It's one of the strongest Greek words. So, you can see here that Paul wasn't, I mean, sometimes our Sunday school materials are like Paul's kind of pensively holding the jacket, but not getting involved in the thing himself, and it's just kind of a bystander, but still guilty because he's holding the jacket. No. Paul was the guy calling the shots, and here, let me hold your jacket while you go execute God's justice upon this person. Paul was the one plotting and planning and going from city to city and gathering names of Christians where they were gathering and going about and having them beaten, stoned, imprisoned, whatever the case may be. I mean, Paul was the villain. And that's, that's what he's relating. So with extreme prejudice, with hyperbolic you know, kind of intensity, did I continuously persecute the church of God with great violence, trying to destroy it, trying to annihilate it. That was Paul's goal. I, again, I don't, at least if we take Paul's words at face value, I mean, what would you say? That Paul in humility is exaggerating? I don't think so. Then if you just take his words at face value, you have to come to see Paul 
in, the, in precisely this way, that this is what he was doing. Again, he was the least likely you would ever possibly think that, oh yeah, God's going to turn him to the, great, to the greatest evangelist the world will ever know. You, I mean, if somebody said that to you, you would be like, I got a white jacket and a padded room for you. <laughs> There's no way. Yeah, right. Okay, so verse 14, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now we've got two pieces of information. We've got Judaism and traditions of my fathers. If you drop down to the study note on verse 14, it'll flesh that out for us, which again is very important for understanding the background. The note reads, Paul had progressed beyond many others in the teachings and practices of the Jewish religion, shown especially by his ardent zeal for persecuting God's church. In regard to traditions, teachings, commandments, stories, etc. of the rabbis accepted by the Pharisees and passed on particularly in the oral law. So, for example, I was reading a text completely unrelated to this, but have you ever been curious about what Jesus might have been writing in the sand when the adulterous woman, yeah, aren't we all? So, what was interesting about that is, so according to the traditions of the fathers, not a biblical source, but what the traditions of the fathers said, you weren't allowed to write on the Sabbath day, that's what that day was, on anything that would have last, so you couldn't write on papyrus, you couldn't write on anything where it would last, but you were allowed to write on the sand because the wind or feet or whatever else would kick it away. So it wasn't considered thus to be work. So you can, if you write on papyrus, work. If you write on sand, not work. That's an example of the traditions of the fathers. You can imagine how microscopic this stuff gets, how detailed. And Paul's like, yeah, I was mastering all of that. Okay. I mean, that's interesting in and of itself, isn't it? Because Jesus is effectively saying, I'm no country bumpkin. I know the law inside and out. I also know the traditions of the fathers inside and out. Like, that's the first kind of shot being fired by our Lord Jesus. We won't go into a teaching on John 8. But anyway, I simply bring that up as an example. So Paul is completely familiar with Judaism circumcision, the calendar, the dietary laws, as well as the traditions of the fathers, the extra-biblical traditions, teachings, and laws that had been put in place. All very, very important, because Paul is then stating to these Galatians, like, if you thought that these guys were experts in all this stuff, and and I'm a a bumpkin that doesn't know these things, just the gospel of Jesus, uh, you're wrong. I was thoroughly engaged with all of this stuff, thoroughly acquainted with it. Okay, so, verse 15. Yes, yes, exactly parallel. The strength of Luther is that he knew the system inside and out, and in many ways, by pressing up against it, kind of broke it. 
or had to have a breakout, and the Lord came and revealed to him. And in many respects, Paul's the same way, that he knew the system so thoroughly inside and out. Just this difference, Paul wasn't despairing in it. Where Luther was despairing in it, Paul was self-righteous in it until God came with the gospel in Christ and revealed it to him. Yeah, and, and Luther received that by writing, he says, Paul here by immediate revelation. Okay, so verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, the, the exact language here is more visceral, the koilios uh, matros, when I was in the stomach, that's the koilios, uh, of my mother. So, he who had set me apart, now that's not the language of holiness, it's just the language like you'd use commonly in terms of like putting an animal in a pen to separate it from the others or something. Okay. When he who had set me apart before I was in my mother's womb and who called me by his grace. Now again, that is, this is not a place to just go, oh, that means God was nice or he called Paul in the same way he calls us all. This is essential to Paul's argument. Okay. So I was doing everything. I mean, not only was I circumcised like they've told you, not only was I following the dietary laws, not only was I following the calendar, I knew more and did more and excelled everyone. I did not have the grace of God until I received it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. So this, again, is, is not just a throwaway word. This is foundational to his understanding and foundational to his argument. So it is God who set him apart before he was in his mother's womb, who called him by his grace, by God's grace. Then he was pleased, verse 16, was pleased to reveal, that's the same word we saw in verse 12, the apocalypsis, to reveal his son to me. And again, Paul's Christology is so on point because Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And that's exactly the same theological expression. It's just different words, different imagery, but it's the same theological meaning. The father had to reveal the son to Paul. So verse 16, again, picking up mid-sentence, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him, his son, among the Gentiles. And now ethnicin is the word. So from ethne, which is the nations. So just, you don't want to get too hung up. Sometimes Gentile can do that. I think it can hung, hang you up. I mean, this is all the nations. That's what's meant. So my awakening came by the grace of God. And it is this same grace of God that he's given me to preach among the nations. You can see where this is foundational to Paul's argument. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Again, the language there is really visceral with flesh and blood. The ESV has just decided to clean that up. So I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. That is to say, immediately upon Paul's conversion, you can go track this in Acts 9. You can reread all that if you like as soon as our class is over in a couple of minutes. And, and see, Paul doesn't immediately go, okay, I've got to talk to somebody about what happened. 
Now, sure enough, he gets directed to, is it Ananias? I can't remember. And he gets baptized for the washing away of his sins and all that. But that's, di- that's different and delayed, and it's not like he's going, okay, well, what's the gospel? He's not consulting with anyone about what this gospel is. Okay, verse 17, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, which would be, I mean, in a sense, it would almost be the natural thing to do. Okay, Jesus has called me to be an apostle. I should go seek out the other apostles who knew him whom he's called but Paul says I didn't do that I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me here apostles of course being used in the narrow sense but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus in two weeks when we reconvene, maybe we'll dig out the map. I see we've just got two minutes. So maybe we'll dig out the map and kind of look at the uh, geography of what Paul's talking about here. It's not really germane to the point. I mean, it was just kind of a fascinating little digression we can go on. Uh, but suffice it to say, for the sake of Paul's argument, he's just like, these are the exact places I went and what I did. And I did not go confer with flesh and blood. So I got this direct from the Lord Jesus, and there was no chance for it to be tainted. Then after three years, that's the other thing we forget as we read Acts, is because we, we live in an instantaneous culture, and everybody's just jumping on planes and doing everything immediately. Um, the internet information spreading instantaneously. It's not so here. So then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. That's what Paul calls Peter course, meaning rock or stone, and remained with him 15 days. How much can you learn in 15 days? Well, maybe quite a bit, but not, it's not like, and I spent seven years with Peter having him teach me everything he knows. So again, I think that that's what's in view here is he's giving an accurate account, but it's not as though like this came to him from other men and he's What's in the background that they'd say, hey, something got missed on the baton pass. The original to Paul, the original apostles gave him all this, but somehow he dropped it and just got a little. And Paul's saying, no, I got it directly from Jesus. And there was no miss on the baton pass because there was no baton pass, period. Right? Yeah. yeah. Paul's letter would point that out. Second, uh, you know, I mean, second uh, Peter mm. would bear that out because he says yeah I don't understand some of the things he's saying yeah exactly (laughs) yeah 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 right Okay, so after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. We'll zoom in on this again next week. In what sense is he his brother? What are the controversies there? I'm sure you can already imagine some of them. Um, And we'll talk about uh, who Jesus' other brothers are or whether or not he had them. Let's talk about all that in a couple of weeks when we reconvene. So we'll do the... We'll do the geography and we'll do the lineage or what might be meant by brother uh, next week. And then in verse 20, I'll just wrap up this way. He says, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. This is why it's sometimes pointed out that St. Paul swears an oath, because that's exactly what this is. So, first century, this would have been understood as him swearing an oath. That is, before God, in the presence, before his very face, now and at judgment day, I do not lie, this is exactly what happened.
And again, we don't know the details, but in all likelihood, he's rebutting and refuting a narrative that the opponents have told about him. We're just not privy to that. But that's why he's drawing down, as God is my witness, I am telling you the truth, that this is my narrative, not the fabricated narrative that undercuts my authority that these guys have told you. So far, so good? All right, we'll get after it in a couple weeks. The Lord be with you.